Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. It is just about opening day at Saratoga Racecourse. It feels like Christmas Eve, like you're waiting for Santa to come. You're waiting for all of the big celebrations. It's like that excitement, that anticipation before a big day. And I think that's really what we have this year with Saratoga being back to full capacity. The best news ever. Um, I always say without sounding selfish, because I was so grateful that we were able to have Saratoga last year. At the start of the pandemic, there had been some questions as to whether we were even going to race at Saratoga at all. So I was grateful that it happened, and I was also grateful that I was one of the few people that got to be there on track every day reporting from the paddock and covering the races each and every day on Saratoga Live on Fox Sports. That being said, it was just lacking in that energy, that that excitement that really is Saratoga in a nutshell. And it was almost, you felt drained at the end of the day because you felt when covering the races, you almost kind of had to overcompensate where you didn't really have any of that energy to feed off of. I just think it's going to be so different this year. Everybody's so excited to come back to the track. And believe me, we all are so excited to welcome you back. So I look forward to seeing everybody over the next eight weeks. If you see me in the paddock, please feel free um, to flag me down, say hi. I would love to connect with you all. And I'm really looking forward to having a great crowd back at Saratoga. So obviously this episode in large part does focus on Saratoga, but we have a little international flair today as well as this podcast is geared towards breeding sales and um, Tattersall's just wrapped up their July sale as well. So a lot going on around the world. Excited to dive into it a little bit today. The tip of the iceberg, so to speak, but obviously a lot more to come as I'm sure we'll have quite a few exciting two year old races uh, throughout Saratoga. And of course, as yearling sales continue on through the season. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. So happy to welcome in my next guest, Tom Law, writer and managing editor of the Saratoga special. And Tom, we are just a few days away from the start of Saratoga with things hopefully back to normal this year. You've got to be excited about that, especially as it pertains to the Saratoga special. Absolutely. Uh, we're very excited. Uh, everybody here in Saratoga is very excited. I've, I think I've spent the last uh, almost, you know, two years, maybe uh, people wondering about the next meet, what's going to be like. Uh, certainly the last six months, you know, everybody's anxious for Saratoga. Uh, who's going to get in? What's it going to be like? Are there going to be fans there? Um, and after experiencing it last year, uh, spectator free along with you. <laughs> I can say that it's, 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 it's very refreshing to think that we're going to have a, you know, an in-house crowd and the energy returning to Saratoga where really it, uh, you know, it's the, it's the best setting for, a uh, a horse race and a, and a live on track crowd. Well, tell me a little bit um, about the the Saratoga special, the, the Cliff Notes version, if you will. Um, so sure. last year, 2020, was the, the 20th publishing season. So uh, a special year, a special milestone for you all and what you do. And I know it is a labor of love, a lot of work during the meet. Absolutely. So the, the Saratoga special was started back in 2001 by Sean and Joe Clancy, uh, two brothers. They're from the Mid-Atlantic region. Uh, great uh, ties to racing. Their father was a trainer. Sean was a steeplechase jockey. Joe was a journalist. Uh, they eventually both 
became journalists and businessmen started the paper kind of a, you know, what we used to, we joke about being a kind of an underground, uh, newspaper, uh, covering racing. You know, we, we call it a daily paper. I think in some years they, they did every day of the whole meet other years we did, you know, four or five issues a week. Um, you know, and we kind of hit the ground running. We cover everything, try to find the best stories that are out there about the horses, trainers, jockeys, owners, breeders, uh, everything going on in the industry. Um, yeah. And like you said, it's our going to be our 21st season. So we're 21 and, and legal now. Uh, so we can uh, enjoy. Uh, even enjoy Caroline Street with everybody else. There you go. I mean, you know, it's funny. <laughs> you mentioned that. Like I always I always joke with people, like you said, it's a labor of love. And, and we really love uh, doing what we do. We, we really love the writing and and covering the the track and stuff. So like my Caroline street, I live in Saratoga, my Caroline street, um, visits are significantly reduced during the meet, um, because we're producing the Saratoga special, um, which this year, uh, we got 20 issues on tap for the 40 days. Uh, we're going to kind of revert to our schedule that we had last year, which was a Wednesday, Saturday, um, schedule in addition to, a lot of extra issues that we've built in around the hall of fame and of course around the phasing tipton yearling sale which is a 100 years this year and the saratoga new york bread uh, sale as well obviously big big uh, key parts to the business and and uh, a lot of the advertisers that are in the special are, are heavily invested in both of those sales mm-hmm. so we're going to try to cover them as as well as we possibly can along with mm-hmm. uh, the races as well and like I, like I said, uh, kind of a Wednesday, Saturday, we're going to do a opening day edition, on, obviously on Thursday, on actual opening day. So that'll be the only slight deviation from mm-hmm. that Wednesday, Saturday schedule. So, But the, the print uh, editions of the paper will be back. Uh, last year was a yeah. uh, digital-only format. Uh, Sean and Joe stayed home in Middleburg, Virginia, and in Fairhill, Maryland. I was here in Saratoga, kind of boots on the ground with a couple other folks. But uh, happy to happy to say that Sean and Joe will both be joining me here this year, along with uh, a couple interns on our staff. And that's kind of been our trademark over the years, having uh, young people, kind of anxious, uh, eager people that want to get involved in either journalism or racing or maybe racing journalism kind of help us out and, you know, do a little bit of everything. Everything from delivering papers to uh, interviewing Hall of Fame trainers <laughs> and jockeys. So it's, uh, you know, like, yeah, totally like you said, a labor of love and something that we both, uh, all three of us enjoy. And we love the process. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of ready to uh, get started with the meet. I'm kind of done with all the preparation. Let's go, you know, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get going on the first day of racing for sure. Yeah, it's like Christmas Eve, you know, waiting, waiting yeah. for Santa Claus to arrive and, and kick things off uh, with opening day, of course, being like Christmas. But yeah, you, you guys do such a great job in telling the stories. And I think that that's really one of the biggest pieces. And one of the things that we really do do well in racing is highlighting those stories in the backside. Um, I, I know it's probably a big topic to cover, but are there some stories that you've gotten to share over the years that have really stood out to you or some that you kind of look back on and say, wow, you know, that was really crazy that I got to have a small piece in, in that and, and share that story with the public. Mm. 
Well, that's a great question. Putting you on the spot uh, there, I know. Yeah, no, it's a great question. When you first started asking it, I was kind of like, oh, no. But now <laughs> now that I think about it, uh, you know, the first thing that really popped into my mind was uh, Wise Dan. Uh, and, of course, Wise Dan uh, was elected into the Hall of Fame last year. Uh, they didn't have a ceremony last year, but they're going to have it again this year. Um, you know, and kind of a, a front row seat to, to him, uh for several seasons in Saratoga. Um, for me, my first year with the special was 2013. Uh, after coming over, I was at Thurber times prior to that for about 15 years, but I, I came in 2013 and 2014 when wise Dan was going strong and, you know, through a strange twist of fate, got to know Charlie Lepresti really well back in 2013. Sean and Joe knew him obviously very well before that he and I be- basically became friends. I ended up kind of getting them connected with my neighbor who had a garage apartment. So Charlie like lived next door to me for the 2014 season when he was kind of bringing wise Dan back from colic surgery uh, to win the Bernard Baruch at the end of the meet. And, you know, just spending the mornings out with Charlie and with wise Dan when he would, when he would breeze on the main track. And then of course, some of those days that he would breeze on the, the Oklahoma turf course, just really stand out. Uh, over the, you know, it's been years now. It's, it's hard to believe that, uh, he's going into the hall of fame this year. It, it feels like just the other day we were covering him and I can, I can remember like just spending a lot of mornings with Charlie leading up to when he raced, you know, whether it was the four star Dave or the Bernard Baruch. Um, and then now he's going in the hall of fame, kind of excited to, to see Charlie come back to Saratoga. Um, hopefully we can spend a little time with him. Like I said, our our publishing schedule is a little different. So it kind of allows us to maybe have a little bit more uh, of the one-on-one interactions that we have, you know, a, a few others that stand out, you know, I've, uh, Al Stahl has been a, a, a great friend and a great, a great guy to, to cover. And, and Tom's data last year was fun. And, and even the year before uh, when he was kind of just getting going, uh, Al, Al used to joke that it was uh Tom and Tom, when he used to see me at the track, kind of, <laughs> you know, following along. And You were in good company uh, anyway. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've, you know, you're always supposed to keep, uh, keep better company, right? Uh, <laughs> isn't that the old saying, right? Uh, <laughs> keep the best company you can. So yeah, that was fun. And, um, you know, just a lot of, a lot of great guys, you know, Rick Violet was a, a great friend mm-hmm. of ours who's, who's now passed away, but, you know, they still have a... <clears throat> Mistakes named for Rick and a kind of a, the Thurbert aftercare day that they've created this year is, is going to be exciting. And, you know, I, I miss Rick all the time and miss seeing him and talking to him. And, you know, last year with Tis the Law was a lot of fun, too. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's Saratoga and I, you know, that's only that's only a, a tip of the iceberg. You know, I, I grew up here in Saratoga, so I have uh, just, you know, memories of, of every year growing up, you know, going back to easy goer when I was, uh, the summer of my senior year of high school, after my senior year of high school, I graduated and easy goer was a three-year-old that year. And, you know, a lot of people can kind of relate to that. He's kind of a popular New York, uh, Saratoga type horse. And so it's going, going back, I'm kind of dating myself, I guess a little bit, but I'll be 50 this year. So I'm kind of, it's kind of Happy exciting. Birthday. So yeah. How about that? Yeah. It's uh, still going strong. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Saratoga is just a great place for memories, a great place to make memories uh, and, and to look back at the past and, mm-hmm. you know, 
and and even last year, you know, even last year we got memories and, you yeah. know, it was, it was rough a lot of days. It just not quite the excitement that was there, but you know, the racing was, was as always top class and, and, and worth remembering, you know, uh, Jackie's warrior and some of the, just tis the law, some of the great performances improbable in the Whitney that stand out. I was kind of going through it the other day and like thinking back to the meet. And I was like, man, it would have been some meet if the people were, uh, uh, people were there and the energy of the crowd would have been, would have been with us. But, uh, yeah, I guess gave you a really long answer to that. Uh, great question. Yeah, <laughs> It was a tough question, though, too. And, yeah. and, and you mentioned, I mean, it really is just the tip of the iceberg for it. And <clears throat> there's so much history in Saratoga, which I think is one of the most incredible things about it. And you mentioned the um, the Phasic Tipton yearling <laughs> sale, select yearling sale coming up with the, yeah. the anniversary, 100 years. We didn't get to have that sale at all last year. And obviously things changed a lot for horsemen because of that. And the New York bread sale not taking place in Saratoga, like, like usual. Um, talk a little bit about the buzz that surrounds that sale usually and what a big storyline it is for the summer at Saratoga. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people sort of associate the uh, start of the Saratoga sale around the time when Man of War was sold um back in the you know pre-1920s um so now we're getting to 100 years i mean there's been a few years where they didn't have the sale in saratoga like you said there was no sale last year uh around world war ii there was no sale but when the sale really first started um they used to sell the horses like in the paddock um where the paddock is today mm-hmm. uh they kind of set up a gazebo and chairs and they lead the horses around and they'd sell them right there at the track. I'm not exactly sure how they did the stabling and, and how they kind of handled all that. But I know that that's where the yearlings were, you know, paraded around the, you know, the paddock when there was no fence and the, the, the trees were there. And then eventually they sort of like Phasic Tipton, which had been headquartered kind of in Madison Square Garden. They had sales down there. They had sales in Kentucky. They eventually sort of took over the, the sales in Saratoga and, and purchased some property uh, on the east side of town, uh, kind of where they are now, East Avenue, Madison Avenue, uh, George Street, kind of right there. They bought that land. And it was interesting because in the early days, uh, when they started building the the barns, the residents on in the neighborhoods around the sales grounds kind of objected to the sales grounds being there. They were kind of like, they felt like it was going to uh, hurt their home value, you know, which is (laughs) kind of funny to think about now, you know, like you think that they were thinking about that back then. That's a very common thing, I guess, nowadays, if you have real estate, kind of where your house is located. Like I have a house here and I live on Circular Street. I love the fact that where I live is a very established neighborhood. And I feel like, all right, my value is great. Well, they were worried about it over there on that part of town. I mean, and then, you know, just think like fast forward to now. I mean, where those sales grounds are located are really, that's really the best neighborhood in in Saratoga. Um, You know, you're right smack dab in the middle of the Oklahoma track is, you know, to the east. Uh, The racetrack itself is to the south. And it's just a beautiful neighborhood on the west and the north ends. And and the sales grounds, you know, 
think about how not to insult those folks that were mad about it, but they could not have been more wrong. I mean, (laughs) quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. The sales grounds have enhanced the value. I mean, think about those houses that are on fifth Avenue or Mm -hmm. Madison Avenue, their, their backyards back up to the, to the sales grounds, which is like, it's never going to change. Well, I'm, you know, I hope it doesn't change. I mean, but those sales grounds have been there for more than a hundred years and they're largely quiet for 95% of the year. Right. I mean, there's, uh, there's about two weeks of, of sales activity in Saratoga. There's another, a little sale in the October up here, but, uh, for the large part, you know, you have just beautiful open air space and, you know, green space and, you know, just some green barns that are locked up and, you know, they could not have been more, more wrong, but you know, that's, uh, that happens, you know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. change is a difficult thing sometimes for people to adapt to. And, and, you know, we, we think about it nowadays, people are having a hard time with adapting to change, but you know, they were having a hard time back then and they're going to have a hard time adapting to change in a hundred years from now. So it's, uh, it's all, it's all perspective. Yeah, very true. And like you said, mostly quiet, except for the big fireworks that that certainly go off there um, in the summer, typically with some big high priced horses being sold. And it it really, I think, is kind of uh, kind of highlights the full circle nature of horse racing. Right. And that we're buying and selling these yearlings. You have some super impressive two-year-olds debuting at Saratoga. Everybody wants to win a maiden special weight or a two-year-old stake at Saratoga and looking for the future. And then of course the older horses on all surfaces are highlighted as well. I mean, are there some horses that you've really noticed in Saratoga? I mean, you're out of the barn all the time Mm. too, and being able to follow their careers throughout. Well, you know, that's always the big question leading into every meet, you know, is what the, what two-year-olds you're going to see. I mean, I think, I think an obvious horse that, um, from looking at the Saratoga sale specifically until the present is uh, first captain, um, mm-hmm. was of course, uh, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time with Arthur Hancock, uh, and Stacy Hancock when they were up here, uh, with first captain as a yearling. Um, and I can remember writing about him, you know, he's a curling, he was just a, a beautiful horse and looked like a, a, a perfect sales horse and now has gone on to be a, you know, great stakes winner and won the Dwyer, or, you know, could run in the Jim Dandy and obviously is a, a sort of one of those second half of the year, three-year-olds that everybody gets excited about kind of to fill that gap, you know, along the lines of maybe like a Taprit, you know, who was mm-hmm. a, a, a topper at the uh, on the second day, I remember talking with, uh, Jonathan Thomas and, and, uh, Aaron Wellman from Eclipse Thoroughbreds and, and John, John Panagot and Robert LaPenta, who sort of teamed up with Bridalwood to buy him. Then he goes on to win the Belmont stakes. It was kind of like, wow. You know, like I, I remember when he, when he was getting on the triple crown trail and going through my notes from the previous year, that's one little tidbit. And I, I don't need to really tell you cause I, you know, I, I follow your work and I can see that you do your homework and you kind of are, are very tuned in, but you know, people that may be listening that want to get involved in racing, keep your notes, you know, and, yeah. and, and keep them, keep them accessible and keep familiar, keep yourself familiar with them because you're going to need them one day and, and maybe you'll never need them, but man, when you do need them, I had such cool stuff about Taprit that I never really used when he sold as a yearling that I ended up using when he won the Belmont. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it was fun, you know, like writing about him and, you know, I can remember 
and, and and even if you don't ever use it in a story or in a in a podcast or a radio interview or a TV interview, you know, you might have it for the background and it kind of helps you um, to ask questions about the horse. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, remember when, when, remember when he was a yearling, you told me he was a little fat or he was a little skinny <laughs> or, you know, is he still like that? And that, you know, that really goes a long way, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm way off target. I guess maybe I'm, I'm already in the mode of, uh, of, uh, coaching the, the Clancy's always call me coach Tom with the interns. I'm trying to <laughs> tell everybody how to, how to do their jobs and, and <laughs> in the best way that they can. Not, not that I'm an expert by any means, but uh, you know, that's, that's all part of the process. And as you know, you know, there's, there's a lot to it and you know, it's a, it's a never ending uh, fact finding mission <laughs> yeah. when, when you're talking about horses for sure. You can never have too much information. It's always then, what do you do with all of that yes. information afterwards? Um, but you mentioned some of the interns. You've had a, yeah. a pretty good track record of uh, creating horse racing stars out of your work for the Saratoga Special yeah. uh, resume building. Yeah, um, the, this is, the, you know, I deserve really none of the credit for any of this other than sort of overseeing them in the last few years. But, you know, Sean and Joe kind of got this train started. You know, I mean, they some of their first interns were, you know, guys like Quint Kessenick, who works for ESPN and uh, Travis Stone, obviously mm-hmm. the announcer at Churchill and and Gabby Gaudette, who who I did work with when I when I first started. Uh, colleague years. I know you've worked with Gabby over the years and, you know, Pete Fornital and Brian Natto and, um, you know, up to the present, you know, we had uh, Madison Scott who works for Solis and, and lit bloodstock and Anise Mont pleasure who's doing some stuff with amplify and, uh, Darley flying start and, um, uh, Shana Tiller's done a great job. Uh, mm-hmm. Caitlin Spivey who's over in New Zealand now kind of doing some things. Um, just some, just a few of the team members, Ryan Martin, who's at Naira, he was kind of like my first right-hand man, my first <laughs> summer at Saratoga. And he's a, you know, Ryan was a, a great character and he wore his American flag shades and his pastel colors. And he's <laughs> since grown up a little bit and, you know, but we, we, we had a great time and, and, and really, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, it's, uh, you know, we've kind of established our place in the industry, but we want to, uh, provide a, a positive uh, learning experience for people that that want to work in the business and want to be exposed to it in the way that we think is the proper way and um you know they work hard uh <laughs> very demanding a lot of hours um a lot of crazy nights and dealing with uh the very different personalities of Joe, Sean and Tom <laughs> um <laughs> you know I can get a little insane sometimes I might yell at them every now and again but I, I you know, we, we treat them as fairly as possible. And, you know, the, the thing we always say is like, we're never going to really ask you to do anything that we're not going to do ourselves, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, delivering papers in the rain or, you know, going to interview that prickly trainer or owner that, you know, <laughs> as you know, all too well, can be, can be kind of difficult. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So, and we're not, we're not, we're never like, yeah, the interns are going to get coffee and, and, and we're sending them to interview, you know, XYZ trainer. That's really hard with, uh, with the media. Um, you know, I'll do it myself or, or I'll, I'll, I'll bring them with them. They can come with me. Uh, they can see how it's done, you know, and we all have the people that we have great relationships with and we all have people that are tough and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, 
it's fun but you know the 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 staff really makes the they really make the publication and i think they give it they give it a, a face and they they really give it a lot of life um you know sean and joe have, have built the special into what it is now you know and it's just my job and and the intern's job to to keep it rolling mm-hmm. and uh you know i take a lot of pride in it um mm-hmm. you know it means a lot to me that that uh, th- those two guys have you know they took a shot with me a couple of years ago and you know i like to repay them every summer as much as i can um but i am glad that they're back this year <laughs> yeah. to uh to get on the ground it was kind of rough being here by myself last year it was a little boring at times but uh yeah, yeah. we're uh, i'm excited i know we're, we're taping this on sunday and joe is on his way here today and sean's gonna be at the phasic sale this week mm-hmm. down in lexington he'll be back up too so it'll be great to have the three of us back together again since for the first time since late uh, 2019. yeah kind of crazy two years pretty much but uh saratoga just a few days away i can't wait to go downtown and pick up a copy of the special and um i really appreciate you taking the time today tom and i look forward to seeing you up at the spa absolutely thank you acacia and good luck at the races and Alex Elliott, Bloodstock agent from the UK, as we just recently wrapped up the Tattersall's July sale. Alex, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward um, to talking with you. And uh, your, your other half, Gina Bryce, was nice enough to sign you up uh, to join me on the podcast today. Yeah, I'm sure she'd have been much better than me, but uh, with children <laughs> to look after, we're off to Mallorca tomorrow, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a late substitute. Well, really happy to get a chance to talk with you as well. Um, let's start by by looking at the sale a little bit that just concluded. I know that you said that you purchased a couple. Um, tell us a little bit about the purchases that you made and maybe an overall view of how the market's been doing in the UK with sales kind of getting back to a regular schedule now. Yeah, well, um, as I think we've all seen throughout COVID, the, the bloodstock industry has been extremely resilient, as it often is through these turbulent times. Um, and Tadassel's always put on this summer sale, which is three days. There's 800 and something horses catalogued, of which 574 were offered and 538 sold. So the clearance rate was good. Um, it's a three-day sale, with the first day being breeding stock um mares um some mares with foals at foot and there was also a stallion at the end of that that first day um garswood who hasn't quite hit the heights that one had hoped he was sold to saudi interests and then the second and the third day are form horses so horses in training um colts geldings mares and fillies uh and they are sold for different for to different destinations around the world including america uh, the Middle East, and uh, I, was a, I was a horse made good money to go to Australia. Um, I managed to buy two mares on the first day. I bought a, a Kendajon mare in full to Memas, who's who's very, he, he's a real uh, hot commodity, not only here, but he's also had some great results in the States with going global. Um, and I bought a mare, uh, a Dubawi mare in Fulton, you approach a nine-year-old mare for 24,000 that uh, came from Shadwell, obviously, with the passing of Sheikh Hamdan, they're looking to reduce reduce their numbers of stock, and they had and they had quite a large consignment in there, so I was pleased to get one of those. 
You mentioned how it seems like the sales and bloodstock has been so resilient as we kind of get back on on a regular path and with the races back to a little bit of normalcy as well. Have you found that it's been a little bit more difficult to get a chance to buy some horses at the sale or have you seen things maybe normalizing a little bit more as I know in the States we've had kind of the the middle market be really tough and very competitive for people looking to to stay within the mid-range. I think for that I think it's the same the world over Acacia but -hmm. especially here in Europe and especially in England because our prize money is so poor that the good stuff will always sell well and and I was lucky enough to make it to uh, the Miami two-year-old sale to Timonium two-year-old sale to Keeneland in January and I think it's just that people people work these sales so hard now that that all the good stuff is found and there's always people to compete over it and that middle market and the and the and the bottom rung of the ladder aren't, aren't where people want to be in here in Europe where we're fortunate is that we've probably got the most sought after bloodstock in the world. So mm-hmm. we get people from every every jurisdiction coming in here to, to try and buy our stock. Now with travel slowly opening up, I, I did feel that there was, uh, I did feel that this sale, there was probably more competition for horses than there has been over the last year or so. But over that past year or so, I've been incredibly lucky because I've been able to travel. And then with being based in England, a lot of people that haven't been able to travel to England have used me to buy horses, people from the States, people from Australia. So I've been I've been quite lucky. And um, now it's actually opening up. I think it's uh, it's it's going to it's going to be a lot more competitive for me personally. Anyway. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the most sought after bloodstock, and it's been a trend that I've really been following because I find it so interesting how people from the States seem to really be seeking out bloodstock from Europe and some new stallions and strong European mares to bring back here to the United States. And we've seen success in our Breeders' Cup with horses that were bought over at Tattersalls, for instance. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you've seen on your end with that kind of trend and do you think that there's been a little bit of more kind of crossover with the bloodstocks between England in particular and in the US? No, absolutely. I mean, if you look back, I, I spent some time in California working with Owen Harty and sort of 20 years ago, uh, 10, 20 years ago, that there was a lot of there was a lot of top turf racing in California. And, you know, it's I think that slowed down a little bit, whether it was to do with what was going on in, in California. Um, but I suppose many years ago, if you take it back to the, when the, when, when the Cornwall conglomerate first started shopping there in Keeneland, it's kind of reversed itself a little bit. Now you've got all these people coming over and what's scary from our point of view is our prize money is, 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 is extremely poor. Um, and you guys can afford to pay, more for these horses than than many domestic owners can you've obviously got the the arab uh contingent that play at the very top but what i've seen is that is in that is in that middle market you guys have been able to come and buy what you want which is it's great for you i think it's great for racing as a whole to mm-hmm. to see these european breads and these you know the 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 irish breads the, the English breads, the French breads, they're going into the States and they're performing at a top level. Um, 
But from our personal point of view, it's quite a worrying time for us because we're kind of struggling to hold on to a lot of our better our better stock. And if we're not careful this end, we're going to lose that quite quickly because not only in America, but Hong Kong and, and Australia, the prize money is so strong that they just can come in and they can cherry pick what they want. So it, 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 it's, it's good and it's bad for sure. No, it's, it's such an interesting point of view. And I think really highlighted with Aidan O'Brien and the Coolmore team just this past weekend coming in and <laughs> sweeping a pair of million dollar stakes at Belmont Park. So it, it certainly makes sense with the difference in the prize money. Um, how do you kind of combat that, you know, when you are at the sales? What are some of the things that you as, as an agent are looking for in order to fill the orders for your clients and maybe make sure that you're able to get the bloodstock that you need to stay in Europe? Well, from my point of view, I suppose we we from from my own personal point of view, I've set up a a partnership group that we try and target middle distance yearlings because in this, the Americans, Mike Ryan et al, they all come over and they try and they try and target that mile ten furlong horse. So if we go a little bit further out in distance, I can kind of find a bit of a niche there, um, and then with a view to down the line selling once the horses have been proven here we can then sell them on to australia or uh but it it i'm 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 not gonna lie it's very difficult if you get a if you find a horse that's good looking vets clean has potential to be a a miling seven furlong two-year-old three-year-old ten furlong horse it's very very hard to compete and I think that's only going to get worse until we sort out our prize money structure. Sure. No, it makes perfect sense. I'm always fascinated with different agents. And when you talk about being able to compete with a horse that's quote unquote perfect and checks the boxes at the sales, are there certain maybe confirmation flaws or some vet issues that you're willing to live with? And you say, OK, this will make this price a little bit lower and I can work with that. Absolutely. I mean, over here, our training is a lot kinder than mm-hmm. maybe over on, on your on your side of the pond. Uh, you're always training on the turn. You're training on a dirt surface. Uh, you're training on relatively hard surfaces to what we train on over here. So I can definitely deal with a few more confirmational faults than maybe somebody buying to race in the States could. That said, with us racing for poor prize money, a lot of these trainers over here now are looking to buy horses that we can trade on. So we do need horses that are good looking and with relatively few confirmational um, faults so that we can then sell them on. So but if I was looking to, to buy a racehorse per se, there isn't a lot that we can, you know, you can you can you, you, you can deal with with a lot of things. But at the same time, we've got to be thinking about the next step. So. I try and buy horses as good looking and as correct as possible. Um, one thing I learned from the States was for me, the knees are the first thing to kind of go if there's going to be a weakness. So I like a horse that's correct through the, through its knees. Um, but overall, I think you've just got to judge it as it comes. You mentioned some of your experiences in the States, and I know you've um, learned from a lot of people along the way. What are some of those lessons that you've picked up in leading you to to your current line of work as an agent? A good question. That um, 
So all I wanted to do when I was younger was, was train, basically. So I set my stall out after I did the Dali Flying Start and even before that to, to train. And then I went and worked for Christophe Clement, who you'll know well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he that was a real school of hard knocks. He taught me discipline. He taught me everything, Christophe, to be honest. That was one of the best first jobs I could have had. Um, <clears throat> and then I went out to Owen in California, uh, where I basically ran a string for him. Uh, so I did four years in the States in total. And when you're seeing that many horses every day in the shed row, you start to learn what a horse looks like and what you can deal with. And when I came back from from the States, I, I decided that uh, training wasn't going to be for me. Um, but that whole education that I had looking at a horse as a trainer has really helped me. And I think it's given me an edge in my next line of work now as an agent. When you talk about knowing what the horses would go through in the training process um, while at the sales, you mentioned the knees. What are some of the things that you first look for when you're going through a sale? Is it mostly gearing towards pedigree or are you focused more on the physical at a first glance? Yeah, I never. I, I tend not to really open a catalogue before I get to a sale and I try to look at as many horses as possible. Um so pedigree is probably the last thing I get down to because that's just going to determine how much you're going to have to pay for this horse. Um, for me, a horse is very much like a, if you watch humans walk down the street, you could generally tell who was going to run and who couldn't. Um, so for me, it's, uh, I mean, I've, there's, um, there's an author called Malcolm Gladwell who talks about having 10,000 hours of experience before you become an expert at something. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I've definitely done 10,000 hours of looking at horses. So I think you build up this, this gut feel for what you like and what you can handle. And I mean, one of the big things for me is, 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 is action. A horse has to have action. I know in America, they don't, those big dirt horses don't tend to walk as, Mm-hmm. big and as smooth and as silky as maybe some of our good European turf horses so you've got to cut your cloth as it fits for whichever sale you're at and what you're trying to buy but um, you know, I think when you've been around enough good horses and you've seen enough good horses at sales they just tend to they tend to stand out at you for whatever reason and 99.9% of them will have a fault or two but it just depends what you can it just depends what you can deal with and live with but I mean a good a good demeanor a good outlook good action um you want to try and buy all of those things and then you just hope that underneath the bonnet they've got that willingness to run what are some horses over the years or maybe one that that really stands out to you whether it's one that you've gotten a chance to be around and when working for trainers or over the years or one that you've been able to buy and, and see be successful well when i worked for christoph i was around Ponty an awful lot and he was uh he was a phenomenal racehorse. And then at Owens, we had Colonel John Wellarm that won the World Cup, um, Victor's Cry, who was a grade one winner. And then since I've started on my own, um, I suppose a horse that's pretty close to my heart is a horse called New Mandate that I picked up for 35,000 euros. And he won the, he was a, a two year old by New Bay um, that won the, I bought, I bought him as a yearling and then he won the Royal Lodge Group Two last year. and we sold him for a lot of money, so that's put my syndicate rolling. I also buy quite a few National Hunt horses. Um, bought a horse called Aplutard that's won uh, Grade One, and he was he was second in this year's Cheltenham Gold Cup. So there's um, there's there's a lot of good horses that that 
you know you 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 see or you try and surround yourself with and uh, yeah you just try and learn from each one I'm sitting in my living room right now looking at a large painting of Gio Ponti. So I, uh, I completely understand the impact that he had of my fiancé, Miguel, of course. Uh, yeah, he was a phenomenal horse. And I, yeah. I, I think with the, the, the best horses are just the consistent ones, the one that you can just hang your hat on each time. And the, the frustrating ones are the ones that have got the brilliance and then they don't really maybe show up each time. But uh, yeah, he was one that definitely did. You mentioned partnerships a couple times, and um, I wanted to ask you about that and, and putting people together, especially at the sales or throughout the races. How much have you seen the, the world of partnerships grow in, and in, the Europe, in, in Europe as well? Because I know it's been very much of a phenomenon here in the States to put a large number of people together in on one horse. It's something that makes an awful lot of sense to me mm -hmm. um, because we all know that it's a it's a it's a it's a extremely risky business buying and racing a horse and i think in america the attrition rate is quite high in terms of these horses getting injured so i think if you can dilute your risk and you know and it and it's 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 fun winning with people it's fun winning together and at the same time it, it sort of dulls the pain a little bit if you if you if you if you don't quite hit the heights that you first set out to do, which obviously happens a lot in racing. Partnerships are something that I would be a huge advocate of. I, I, it's something that it's something that I've seen more and more of in the in the in the past maybe seven years that I've been running my business. Um, and if you can try and piece a horse together, and you can find two like-minded individuals, then it's great. But on the flip side of that, there's um, there's often uh, there's often some egos. And um, people want control, and uh, as a partnership, it's great if if, a, if if owners give the the control to say a trainer and um, the the manager, then it, it you know they, I think that there's a lot of people and professionals in the business that make some really good calls. So for me, I'm I'm very pro partnerships, um, and it's something that I think we'll see. I think I think it's something that we'll 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 see more and more of, to be honest. As we get ready to kind of kick off a lot of summer action and there's still much of the year left to come, is there anything, any purchases or any sales in particular um, that people listening should be watching out for that you've been involved in or maybe that you're just excited to see? Yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, um, I'm looking forward to all the yearning sales starting. There's a chance I make it to Saratoga this year, which I haven't done for, since I worked for Christoph, actually, I haven't been to Saratoga, which was 2008. So that would be nice to get back for there, and then fly straight to Deauville, and then we're we're on the and then we're on the merry-go-round. But there's the yearling sales, and then it goes into obviously breeding stock, and suddenly we'll be at the Breeders' Cup, and then it'll be Christmas. So there's a lot to look forward to. But I suppose there's quite a few horses that I've actually sold to the states recently um, that I'm quite looking forward to now that Delmar and Saratoga are going to get going. Um, there's a filly called Diamond Dampshire that was second in a court maiden on debut. She was the best horse and she's been sent to Brad Cox. Um, Approach the Dawn is a three-year-old filly that was second in a, a, a current maiden. She was she was second to a, a filly called Joan of Arc. She's a three-year-old, was second yeah. to a filly called Joan of Arc that won the French Oaks, the Prix de Diane, uh, subsequently. So she's exciting. She's got a maiden condition. She's been training with Graham Motion. Uh, and then there's three horses gone to California that I've bought in sort of in conjunction with Joe Miller, 
um, one's called Percolate, who's a full brother to Pants on Fire that was a grade three winner out there. Uh, Optimizing is a Memes horse that I bought at the two-year-old sales. He won on debut. And then Joe's gone and bought him. He's gone to Mike McCarthy, as has Percolate. And then recently we just bought a horse called Zoffarelli, who's a three-year-old Zoffany that's going to go to uh, Jeff Mullins. So, you know, there's going to be plenty of action both sides of the water. Uh, we've had Royal Ascot here and we've just had the July meeting. We then move on to Goodwood. So, yeah, and then, we, you know, we've had the July sale that's just been. And then last year with COVID, Tadis was brought in an extra horse and trading sale, which is going to be the August sale, just to give people another chance to maybe offload some stock before they mm-hmm. buy again and go shopping again at the yearling sales. Do you have a favorite type of sale? Is it yearlings and kind of those young horses or, or maybe some more established runners like the horses of racing age? No, I'm definitely, I love the young horses, okay. you know, it's, it's well, because you're buying a dream and mm-hmm. uh, with those, with those form horses, I suppose if you're buying a nice horse to maybe change jurisdiction. So you, if you've got a good horse from the, from the UK that you're trying to buy to then bring to the States or trying to buy to Central Australia, they're quite exciting because they've got a big chance of moving up. Um, but when you're buying the young stock, the foals maybe to resell or, you know, that Keeneland September sale is one of my favorite sales. Oh, I, th- I think all the yearning sales, and I, I, I get a real buzz when I walk in there and start looking at this untried stock and just trying to, just trying to sift through the, just trying to, just trying to sort the wheat from the chaff, I suppose. It's all, it's, uh, it, it's exciting and, it, and it's my big passion. Well, wishing you the best of luck with all the yearling sales coming up and um, those exciting runners to watch. Alex, really enjoyed speaking to, to you today. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Okay, so thanks very much for having me. And that wraps up today. Once again, a big thank you to my guests, Tom Law and Alex Elliott. Um, two very different perspectives and talking about some different topics. So hope that you all enjoyed that and look forward to continuing on with a little bit more international sales coverage. That's been something that has been a goal of mine with this show. So I hope to get a chance to dive into that a little bit more. But I'm sure over the next couple of months, the main focus will be Saratoga. And I want to get a little action from Del Mar on here as well for all my West Coast people. I totally understand. Um, I've had the privilege of being at Del Mar opening day before, and um, it really is a special place too. So hoping to get a little bit of coverage of that. The summer places to be will be buzzing this summer and and so excited to see uh, all of the great racing action and all the people back on track. So as always, if you have any suggestions or people that you'd like to hear from, let me know. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might enjoy it. And Come on over to me at Saratoga and say hi. I look forward to meeting and catching up with all of you. As always, if you're not signed up for the In The Money Media podcast uh, or In The Money Media newsletter, I should say, please do so. So much great content and you'll find a lot of great insight as we move through the Saratoga and I'm sure uh, meets around the country as well. So lots of great stuff coming up. I hope that you all enjoy it and happy Saratoga tomorrow's opening day.